Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Today is February 17th, 2022, and we have Sarah Burke from the University of Florida. Sarah Burke is Associate Professor of Neuroscience and Associate Director of the Cognitive Aging and Memory Center at the University of Florida College of Medicine. And her lab is working to pinpoint alterations in how different brain regions communicate over a lifetime and how this contributes to loss of function in advanced age, and to design therapeutics for alleviating cognitive dysfunction in order to promote positive health outcomes in the elderly. I, I, I got that about right. Around the table, we have Isabel Muzio and Francesco Savelli. These are our hippocampus experts, and I think you can kind of guess that this is going to be a hippocampus-heavy <laughs> episode. And my name is uh, Charlie Wilson, and I'm your host. If you're a regular viewer of this podcast, you are missing Salma Karashi right now. And me too. Salma has been doing this for 14 years. This has been her podcast. She quit to, to take a job at CSR at NIH, so she may be your SRO on your next grant application. And we miss her, and uh, maybe we'll get her back as a guest at some point in the future. Yeah. So, uh, Sarah, uh, there's a translational gap between animal models and human aging. You could say that about animal models of anything. Right. I'm sure that's nothing special about aging, but a lot of the animal work on aging just assumes that whatever happens in the brains of mice or rats as they get older is the same thing that's happening to us and that's responsible for our complaints about aging. And um, there, it's a, such a multidimensional problem. There are so many different things that go on in the mouse and rat brain when it ages and so many things that happen to us and we don't know if they're exactly the same. And so it's a very hard problem. And I was just wondering if you know, uh, you would start us out by telling us about your strategy for mm -hmm. trying to just sort out this. Uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for that introduction. It's great to be here. Um, so, you know, when I was kind of coming out of my postdoc research, one of the things that was, you know, I was really trying to, to tease apart was I had done recordings in the periorontal cortex, which is a structure that sends projections to the hippocampus. It seems to be really important for um, recognition, memory, and the ability to discriminate between similar stimuli. So it's also involved in high-level sensory perception. And one thing that we had seen in our recordings there was that neurons aren't as active. Um, and so you think, okay, if we could give some sort of intervention that would boost the activity of those neurons, perhaps that would help with some of the deficits that we had seen in our rodent model. Um, at the same time, there was really important work coming out um, from uh, Ian Wilson, um, who was a graduate student with Michaela Gallagher and Heike Tanilla, showing that there was hyperactivity in CA3. And they um, also had noted this in humans through um, fMRI imaging. And you know, I, I kind of started thinking, well, if we ramp up activity in one region with like a standard systemic pharmacological approach, it could exacerbate problems that are happening in CA3. And that's really where I started to think about, we have to address how these structures are talking to each other. 
and that if we're going to improve behavioral output at the cognitive level, we need to kind of zoom out and look at more network level interactions. Um, and you know, there had been decades of really beautiful mechanistic studies characterizing cellular changes at the receptor level and gene expression changes in, in brain regions. And what that work had shown is that there's no there's no rule. Even when you look across different hippocampal subregions, what was happening at the molecular level in CA3, for example, is completely different than what was being seen in the dentate gyrus or CA1. Um, and so, you know, through that, I did kind of like zoom out. And at the same time, I also had the fortune of working with a non-human primate model. And so, you know, previously all my behavioral work in rodents had been like, well, let's put the rat in the water maze and see if they find the platform. And you know, let's do novel object recognition and see if the if the rat can recognize or discriminate between the new and familiar object. And these are behaviors that are really kind of removed from what humans need to do to function in their daily lives. Um, and you know, it had been shown that like older adults are more susceptible to false memory. But usually, those aren't the complaints that you get. You know, someone doesn't complain like, oh, I thought I recognized someone and they were a new person to me. They complain about not finding their keys or not remembering names. And so, I think that from the primate work, I started doing more like sophisticated challenging behaviors, which also got me thinking, well, you know, why don't we do that with rats? If like in monkeys, we were designing behaviors from what humans are doing, I think we can do the same thing with rodents. So my strategy has really been, for better or worse, to treat a rat more like a human. Um, and, you know, have animals in like long-term behavioral experiments try to design behaviors where we're mindful of what humans need to do to function um, and then with that, we can use that to probe the network level changes that are happening across the lifespan. So there must be a big literature on what humans don't do as well as they get mm -hmm. older. That includes formal behavioral testing. And uh, you can use that as an inspiration. What are those? What are the things? Now, I have no idea yeah. what... What goes wrong with you as you get older? So I got really fortunate to, at the, you know, while I was in my postdoc, um, Carol started a collaboration with Adam Gazeli, who is at UCSF. And Adam had shown that, um, you know, if you have older and younger adults do a very simple recognition task, you know, have you seen this face before? Have you seen this scene before? They're fine. But that then if you interrupt that with a secondary task, the older adults have a deficit. And I think what was even cooler about some of those studies was that in younger adults, when you interrupt a primary task with a secondary task, the functional connectivity between frontal cortex and medial temporal lobe, that supporting task behavior, it, it's interrupted. But then when they go back to the primary task, it resumes. And you don't see that in older adults. That functional connectivity is disrupted, and it doesn't pick back up when they can't do the behaviors. And so I was kind of interested in that dynamic. And we had designed some studies in monkeys to kind of capture that effect of having that interruption task and that older adults being more vulnerable to an interruption. Um, then at the same time, um, I was also interested in an in animal's ability to discriminate between stimuli that share features, which is something that the periorontal cortex is important for. And I will say as a graduate student, I kind you know, I was, I had a love of the periorontal cortex. I was definitely, you know, thinking about everything from a framework of what's the, how's the periorontal cortex contributing? Um, but at the same time that was happening, Craig Stark at um, UCI was designing what's called the mnemonic similarity task. And it was very similar to some of the stuff we had been doing in rodents, where he had found if you just give, um, if you ask human study participants to do just a uh, recognition task, and so they just get images of features on a screen and they incidentally encode them. So you know, there'll be an image of a couch and then a, 
a pineapple and a duck, and they're asked, like, would you find this inside or outside? And they're not told that they're going to be tested on it later. And then you go and you test them, and you show them images and say, you know, tell me if you've seen this before, if it's new, or if it's similar to something you've seen before. And what he found was that older adults are really impaired at being able to discriminate um, a new object from a familiar object if they share features. So an older adult is much likely, if you showed them a pineapple in the first phase of the experiment, and then you show them a different pineapple that's like not ripe, for instance, they're much more likely than younger adults to say, I've seen that pineapple before. And that was very comparable to some of the things we were seeing in rats. And so, um, and it was also really exciting because Craig Stark and Mike Yass at the time were also paying attention to a lot of the animal work that was happening. So there was a really good crosstalk that was developing between what you know, the human cognitive neuroscientists were doing and some of the work that was happening in animals. Um, and so I've kind of taken it as a, I don't know, I guess a cornerstone of my research to really be mindful of what's happening with human cognition as we age and trying to model that. I, I have a question about that. It was very interesting that your task required this multitasking type of approach because they have to attend to different features of the environment and objects as well as the navigational aspects, which reflects that perhaps, you know, that is really impaired. But I was wondering how much is learning being impaired or learning memory process versus attentional process? And can you disentangle between the two in older animals? Yeah, so I, that's an excellent question. And I don't, I mean, from our task, we can't disentangle it, but clearly attentional impairments contribute to memory impairments. I mean, in some of your yes. work in the Contrasts, work showing that like when you make the animal do a task and attend, you can see changes in place field st stability. Um, what I, and I think another thing we need to take into consideration is how the animal prioritizes mm -hmm. the task because what we, when we look at the types of errors the rats are making, they don't make working memory errors. Actually, that they, you know, whether they need to go left and then right, the continuous alternation, they perform more comparable between young and age. And so maybe perhaps that's prioritized. It's really when they get to the biconditional association that we see most of the errors emerging. Um, maybe it would be good to go over the task a little bit. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> so how the, the task works, the, the rat is continuously alternating on a figure eight maze. Um, and so every time they take a left turn in the next trial, they need to take a right turn. But before they come back to the next trial, they're interrupted with an object discrimination problem. And so when they're, for instance, on the right side of the maze, they see two objects. One is always going to be rewarded, and the other is not going to be rewarded. So if they move the correct object, they'll get a little reward. And then when they come back around, they have to remember, even though they were interrupted, that if they took a right turn prior, now they need to take a left turn. And then they come around, and they get a, the same object discrimination problem, but now the answer is different. So if before there was like a house and a snowman and the snowman was the correct answer, when they're on the other part of the maze, the house is now the correct answer. So they have to integrate information about where they are in the environment along with what are the features of these two objects that they're presented with um, in order to solve the task. And then this is all in the context of why they're needing to maintain some sort of working memory load so they can recall to make the correct turn. So if the errors are in the navigational strategy rather than the working memory component, it seems that those object components could act as distractors, right, for the mm -hmm. animal in terms of allowing them to navigate, and, and that's why they cannot perform as well. I'm not sure if that would be a right interpretation of your of the errors that they make. 
so or it's just the deficit in the spatial ability of the animal when the animal has to maintain different uh, streams of information. Yeah, I mean, so I don't think what I I don't think that it is. Ju- I mean, clearly they have spatial processing deficits with age. I don't think it's just a spatial issue. Um, and because if we do just the alternation task, mm-hmm. we can see maybe sometimes some subtle age differences, but really not as robust as when we do it in the context of the of the larger task. So I don't think it's just a deficit in spatial processing. Um, I think that it's actually kind of more of a, a multi-level integration and that they're presented also with ambiguity in that they have the same stimuli, but depending on where they are, they need to make a different choice. And I think... One of the things we see in our old animals where they are more response-driven in their behavior. So when presented with the two objects, they're much more likely to, regardless of the object identity, just pick a side. So, you know, and for some rats, it's going to be the right side. You know, whether it's the house or the snowman, they'll select right, and they'll do that in both parts of the maze. And I think that when they're presented with some sort of ambiguity, there's kind of a behavioral default. And actually, I think that fits with some of your work, too, with the with the old rats that, you know, they, they might not be encoding kind of these multi-dimensional aspects, but they'll like look, tack onto like one geometric feature, for instance. Um, and, you know, we, there's some evidence from that even in the young animals, when we perturb activity and inactivate something, we see that then the young animals will default to that type of response-based strategy. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. And I thought that it was really, really captivating in your talk. Maybe you can tell the audience um, the alter patterns of connectivity or activity that you see in the old animals. And then I can pick up on a question. But um, maybe you can explain what you found and and we continue this. (laughs) Yeah. So I think one of my scientific obsessions um, with regards to trying to fill that translation gap has been collecting data from a rat in the same modality that we could collect from a human. And so from that, we've become interested in being able to connect or collect resting state connectivity data um, through MRI. And then also in another series of experiments where we have um, screw electrodes and we're collecting EEG simultaneously with our intracranial LFP to try and relate the two. Um, And so with that, um, in the resting state networks, what we find is that with the aged animals, when we have them learn our task, um, and this is true on the working memory biconditional association task that we discussed, but also with a touchscreen-based task that looks at um, paired associates learning, when we train the animal on those tasks, we see a large reorganization in the resting state connectivity. Um, and you know, there's you know more like subtle changes that you can see when you look at individual regions, but globally there's a kind of a boost in functional connectivity that we see in the connectome of aged rats that we don't observe in our young animals. And we don't observe that in aged rats that are just trained to walk around a track for rewards that aren't, we don't challenge them with, you know, a high cognitive load. Um, We don't see that reorganization. Um, And then, you know, some of that has paralleled work that has been seen in older adults where there's kind of a de-differentiation of functional networks um, with aging. We also see differences in kind of the structure of those networks. Um, And even at baseline, what we see is less kind of small world architecture or ridge club architecture. um, And that has also been observed in humans. Um, But what, you know, we're excited then about is now we can go in and in those same brains that we have data that could be collected from a human, being able to go in and then link that back to something that's changing at a more cellular level. 
Do you think that this is an overcompensatory effect that makes the animal lose specificity about what it has to remember? What is your interpretation of the data? Yeah, so I'm agnostic right now on whether I think that this reflects a primary insult or some sort of aberrant organization or whether it's compensatory. Uh -huh. um, and I think that one of the advantages now that we have in animals um, is that we can go in and we can knock that activity out and we're using dread approaches right now to kind of dial that back and see if their behavior gets better or worse, um, which you can't do in a human. And there's actually been a debate for a while in humans as to whether, and, and so in humans there's a rich literature that shows um, that there's increased activation in frontal cortical regions. Um, and that has been proposed to be compensatory. Um, and then other groups have argued, well, it might not be compensatory because you can see that boost in activation when the cognitive load is less. Um, so the analogy that I've heard is, um, you know, that prefrontal activation is maybe comparable to heart rate, that like the resting heart rate's elevated. And so then when you need to recruit additional, um, you know, kind of cardiovascular function and up the heart rate, you don't have the same dynamic range. So if you have a frontal cortex that's already overactivated when an older adult's doing a simple task, it, there's not much more you can recruit. So it's hard to say if that's compensatory or if that's you know, a deficit in the dynamic range of activation. Um, and since we see something similar in our rats, now we can perturb that activity and you know, kind of shed some light as to whether or not this reorganization is helping the animal reach some sort of behavioral homeostasis or if it's getting in the way. So in humans, a resting state connectivity is measured by having the person just sit in a scanner. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're solving some difficult integral, or maybe they're just trying, trying to figure out what to have for dinner. It doesn't matter. Either way, you see this connectivity. So the animal is the same thing, right? They've been running this task, and now you take them and put them in the scanner and say, don't do anything. I mean, they can't really do anything. So, they yeah, they're really... lightly anesthetized when uh -huh. they're in the scanner. Um, and, you know, my collaborator, Marcelo Fibo, and other um, Craig Ferris at Northwestern that, or Northeastern that have done a lot of work in, you know, functional connectivity and animal models um, have done, you know, a lot of great work. And actually, they, you can do it in awake animals. They've done a lot of work to kind of show what levels of isoflurane don't mess with the detection of the networks. But they, they definitely are anesthetized, whereas a human you don't know what they're thinking about in there. And actually, I was really worried about that when I started presenting these data, especially in front of like human cognitive neuroscientists. Um, and a few of them actually said, well, in some ways, that's kind of better because you can normalize across your animals. So, you know, you could have someone that's, you know, thinking about their shopping list and what they're doing, or they just had a fight with their spouse and the wheels are turning, um, you know, but in, in our rats, they're kind of all like lightly taken offline. Yeah. So the, the relationship between resting state connectivity and connectivity during the task is, is sort of complicated in mm -hmm. people, and it must be like that too. And I'm wondering, what can, you, what can you tell from the resting state connectivity about... The, because, the, because this... I don't know, this is just... Maybe I'm, it's just my opinion, but it seems to me that calling this correlations among these uh, signals uh, from bold signals, calling that connectivity is an exaggeration. Yeah. No, it's really just point. resting state correlations among mm -hmm. places in the brain. And so it's dynamic. It's, you don't really think that that's permanent or 
although it may reflect some permanent difference, mm -hmm. it, it is not itself permanent because you know that if you ask somebody to do something, then that network is going to completely right. change. And, uh, and so, and presumably in the, in the rat too. So this is not a, you know, in a way, it's not really your problem. It's the problem of the people who invented resting state connectivity. But, but what, what do you, how do you think about how resting state connectivity is going to tell you about task yes. activity? So I think from the human literature, there was an assumption that the resting state connectivity is kind of the default architecture that's there that then when you go into a task is going to be built off of. And the notion was that these things were relatively stable. And there had been some longitudinal studies um, in young adults showing that resting state networks are like, you know, relatively stable from session to session. Um, and, you know, clearly in our rats, we're not seeing that at least in the aged animals yeah. and we don't know how that maps on to task function yet right i mean in one obviously way, we the have animals some can't that, be doing the task while you're well, no, doing the scan so you yeah. can't it's not like some human task where you could ask them to gamble online while they're in the scanner you right. can't ask them to run that but Maze. I think, and I think that I would like to comment on this, because it has been shown in rodents that during periods of state, uh, rest, I'm sorry, there is replay of activity of what the animals have been doing before. And also during a sleep states, it is thought that memories are consolidated. Yeah. So I think that perhaps some of the features that are being captured by the imaging study that Sarah is doing are um, these states during which the memories are being transferred to neocortical regions and to be consolidated. So while they may differ from what is active at any given time during the task, they still may reflect that very unique experience, especially for the rats. They are all day in their cages and all of a sudden they do this super the interesting task. Exactly, <laughs> that's a significant experience for the animal. No, I think that's true. And so one of the directions that we're moving in is to try and answer that question precisely. Like, how does the resting state connectome relate to what we see during the behavior? And we have a little bit of a hint from the first study where we saw that in the old animals, there was increased functional connectivity over a course of training between medial frontal cortex and dorsal striatum. And then that related to when we looked at activation during behavior, there was more arc expression in the dorsal striatal neurons. So there does seem to be a hint that there's a relationship there, um, but that was very indirect. So to get at that more directly, we've got a, a wing of experiments that are being planned where we're going to be using um, 3D light sheet imaging to look at CFOS and MPAS4 expression in the animals that have done the task and then co-register that with the same animals that have done that we have resting state data from. So we can see, is there something in the resting state network that, that can then predict what we're seeing in the behavior? Um, there's other groups that are using resting state to look at rats. Um, so Peter Rapp has done some of this work um, at the NIA. And you know they've looked at it very much from the perspective of, you've got a resting state network that, how can that predict a later behavioral deficit? So the idea that, you know, this connectome is set up and then it's going to set an animal on a trajectory 
that's either going to be you know better cognitive aging or worse cognitive aging. And they've got some interesting results, like the retrospinal cortex is actually a region that's come up with being um, important in terms of you know the way that was connected to the rest of the network was predictive of water maze performance. Um, but we're taking a little bit different of approach of thinking of the resting state network as something that isn't fixed, that is modifiable by experience. Um, and so I think it's kind of important to acknowledge like the extent to which this is dynamic, um, but also knowing the caveat that like we're not talking about actual physical connectivity here. We're talking about correlations between nodes. Um, that's kind of a, an inferred functional connectivity. And that's what I wanted to ask. So uh, talking about um, the hubs that you mm -hmm. talked or these small world networks or the nodes that you just mentioned, is there a sense of what the neural basis of that? So what are we talking about clusters of neurons or just pieces, you know, just lockout zone or tissue or what, 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 is, what is this functional connectivity in terms of the actual constituents of yeah, the so brain? From the re that's a great question. From the resting state perspective, like what we call a node is a lot of neurons. I mean, that's right. a pretty big chunk of tissue. Um, and then I think in the experiments where we started, where we were doing tracers in conjunction with immediate early gene image to mark activity, um, we do see individual cells that kind of fit perhaps the definition of a hub in that so like... So it could be a single cell? Well, I think it's a population of cells. A I don't think it's I don't think cells. it's a single cell, um, but I think there you know we need to do more to relate to figure out when we talk about the the node from the perspective of the resting state network where we've got a lot of cells into play, what it's you know what neurons within a specific region are constituting that hub? Is that something that's carried right. by? You know, and also what type of projections do those? But somehow that has to like. be a high density of neurons that are coactive or or cooperating yeah. in some ways in order to be able to tell this functional well, node or something. It's or kind of a correlation. So if all the neurons are doing different things, and then a small number of neurons are all doing the same thing, right. then they pop out. Right. That's the beauty of the correlational method. And so... Right, but it's distributed spatially, right? You know, the way you're seeing with the MRI, you know, like mm -hmm. it has to be distributed spatially. So, like, you know, I'm thinking, I'm trying to think about even from the standpoint of neural coding, like, you know, this mm -hmm. idea. So, for example, you know, the integers, okay, you have sparse codes and you have uh, different codes for different memories. And so the idea is that really you shouldn't have a spatial organization for that because... It's so like it's about like which neurons are active at a given point, and now if all a bunch of neurons have to be active in a particular position, that seems like it reduces the number of combinatorial possibilities for. Think of it as changing in time. I think so. You have a subset of neurons in structure A you want to be the dentate gyrus, and then a subset in structure B, and those two are changing together. And then there's another subset here that's changing together with a different place, okay. and those are staying together. So this is now a node in connections with both those other two places. And so you could have a, um, a brain area that was connected independently to lots of other, functionally connected, <laughs> functionally yeah. connected independently to lots of other places. And that's, and some places just do that, and those are the ones that, in these um, 
analysis, you see those and you okay. say, wow, that looks like a hub. There is, there is some evidence at the molecular level that there is a predisposition from some neurons to be recruited more than others. The mm-hmm. work of Gina That's Jocelyn it. has shown that cells that, there are some cells, especially in CA3, that express higher levels of CREB that tend to be recruited much more easily into different memory traces than neurons that have lower levels of CREB. Uh, so uh, maybe what leads to those elevated levels of CREB, maybe it's experience, maybe it's the connectivity, initial connectivity between those neurons in the first place. I don't know if no one knows, but there is some at least molecular evidence yeah. for this. I think that also relates to some of Yuribuzaki's work showing like the logarithmic coding that like cells that had high firing rates in environment A, it wasn't the random draw with replacement model that you could see completely orthogonal place field maps between two environments, but cells that had really high firing rates and strong place fields in environment A were likely, even though it might be in a different location, to have a place field in environment B. And I mean, even we've we've done another branch of immediate early gene work where we also imaged Homer, which is another immediate early gene that has slower transcription kinetics. And actually, what's great about Homer is that if you look at its um, the number of cells that have it in the cytoplasm, that corresponds to a cell that was active an hour before sacrifice. So it gives us another time point. And so we we did an experiment where we used the Homer cytoplasmic signal to determine the cells that were active in the home cage. And we're working on this paper right now. It's actually the last paper I'm finishing up with, with Abby, my first grad student, who's now um, at her postdoc. And the cells that, had, that were active in the home cage or that had Homer expression were much more likely to be recruited in the task, even when they were going in for. So, I mean, you're absolutely right. There's kind of a, a bias or selectivity yeah. for some cells to be brought in. I think, um... Uh, the team, I think it might have been Albert Lee when he was in Mike's lab that he showed that if you, I mean, cells that are in a more excitable state, they're more likely than to make a place field in an environment. Mm-hmm. That was before the animal even entered the environment, yeah. if I remember correctly. So definitely there's there's going to be some kind of, uh, you know, all possible, all possible um, you know, biological explanations. I was still just kind of trying to figure out what these networks you know could tell us about how the brain is or activity in the brain is organized because it seems like it's a it's a it's a powerful principles that it can be like these clusters of functionally correlated activity and um, it seems like it transcends what you know the traditional distinction of brain regions that it is right or it at least it's a different level of organization that is compatible but it's it's not just a perfect match right so right. It's kind of something that goes even beyond. So it seems like very profound to me. It's like, you know, and, and one of your results, I mean, getting back to that, is that yeah, is it isn't just a change in the total amount of connectivity that uh, that you're seeing in aging, or which means a change in the total amount of correlation in the mm-hmm. in the forebrain, but it's also a change in the structure of the network as you see it there. Right. So. The the hubs and their connections actually change their the diagram, the diagram changes. So I don't know exactly what that means, but that's a, that is an aging result that isn't just turning, cranking up excitability or cranking right. down excitability, but it may be a different strategy the, of recruiting parts of the brain into the problem. No, I mean, I think that could be the, you know, maybe the default strategy that we develop, you know, from 
know, early childhood to kind of solve these like high level complex tasks, that starts to, to break down as you have certain nodes that become compromised. So to then get past that, you do need like, you know, a kind of a like large scale reorganization. Um, and I think now our next challenge is to try and figure out what that means at the cellular level and where that's coming from and like what what are the ingredients of these nodes that are changing? Yeah. And one thing, I mean, as a as a rule, like, I think neuroscientists have become so great at developing new tools to answer a question, like within a level of analysis. But we now need to think about good strategies that can then like bridge levels of analysis. So how do we link these data from resting state MRI that kind of encompass the whole brain back down a level or two levels to really fundamentally know what's changing at the cellular level? That is a great thought for us to end on. So <laughs> hold that thought. And uh, thank you very much, Sarah, for joining us. And this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop with Sarah Burke.